0: Hi, it's Leah. Today I'm speaking with Tessa Alexandrian. Tessa is focused on steering toward nice futures for biotechnology. To that end, she works at iGEM, creating incentives and programs that encourage synthetic biology development that is responsible, responsive, safe and secure. She used to spend her days wrangling robots to do biological engineering, but now spends most time wondering how to get biologists to engineer the right things. We cover everything from the fun to the glamourless realities of babysitting robots to the difficulties with balancing optimism and honesty in the face of great uncertainties, and also touch upon the germy paradox. Why have we not seen more biological weapons used yet? Without further ado, here's my conversation with Tessa. So Tessa, thanks a lot for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with some general questions that I always like to ask to get a better overview over the particular field. So according to you, what's a real granular problem that exists today? And assuming that you're working on a kind of solution, it would be great if you could connect that to the work that you're currently doing.
1: So the granular problem, I would say, is we don't know how to do biology safely. And I think in biology right now, it is an extremely exciting time. You know, if if you're a person who's feeling kind of down about progress in science, come hang out with us in synthetic biology, because we're having a lot of fun and we're making a lot of really fast progress. And, you know, it's it's very optimistic in terms of new biomanufacturing, new tools to combat climate change, new medical tools. It's, it's really, really exciting. And I think the part that I worry about, the sort of problem that I work on is more, are we sure that we're going to build tools that actually lead to a good future? And there's this Isaac Asimov quote that I, I was thinking of from his book on science. And he actually, upsettingly to me, he was a professor in biochemistry before starting his career as a science fiction author, which is... Too many skills for one person to have, but you know, so he had a very good understanding of science and one of, one of his quotes is the saddest aspect of life right now, and he was writing in 1988, is that science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. And so in terms of doing biology safely, that comes down to both, you know, are we going to deploy technologies like human germline gene editing in a way that reinforces the current inequities in society, you know, before we're wise enough to handle it? But also, you know, things like are we wise enough to work with high consequence pathogens in the lab or are we going to have laboratory escapes that start pandemics or, you know, are we going to be able to localize gene drives or are you going to have people that decide to deploy them before we've developed technologies to kind of keep them localized and, and so the solutions I'm working on are kind of a fewfold. I'm not really working on the policy side. There's amazing people who are trying to develop regulations for some of these technologies and kind of pursue that direction of how do you mandate that labs do certain things or track accidents or that sort of thing. The stuff I'm working on is a lot squishier. It's like, how do we make it everyone's responsibility? Because this technology is developing so quickly that we have no hope of developing regulation that keeps pace with it. It's just not possible, right? If if you have to finally craft the legal details of every single sentence in a piece of regulation, it just can't keep pace with synthetic biology. An example from iGEM where I work now is that we had a team in 2016 that nearly build a gene drive. And this was before there was any national or international guidance on gene drives because they were a very new technology then. And so we realized, okay, we have to be doing governance that works in a different way. That's more about how do you train people almost on a cultural level to see the impact of their work as part of their responsibility, and then hopefully get them to make wiser decisions as practitioners, because they're not going to have totally adequate guidance to do that from the policy and regulatory side. And then the other part that I, I think about is, okay, imagine that things are just going to go wrong. How can we reduce our vulnerability to that? And so there's this paper by Nick Bostrom called The Vulnerable World Hypothesis, which I quite I quite like. And he has this metaphor of imagining that Society is pulling balls out of an urn and some of those, most of those are just like beneficial technologies. And you're like, oh great, a new technology, excellent, we're going to have a brighter future. But what if some of them are technologies that society just can't handle? And he gives the example of, you know, what if nuclear weapons could have been made really easily? What if they didn't require this complex process of refining the elements? Could society handle that? And he's like, probably not, right? And there might be other technologies of that shape in this pool of technologies that we're drawing from or in this technology tree that we're traversing into the future. And one of his proposals, he acknowledges that we're not going to give up on new technology, right? It's too good. We, we want to have new technology. But he says, maybe we can differentially develop technology. So maybe we can, as practitioners of technology development, maybe we can think about what are the impacts of this technology and how can we steer towards ones that differentially reduce risks rather than increase risks? And how can we sort of build that risk assessment into our process of prioritizing which technology to develop? So that, that shows up as well in terms of what we're trying to incentivize at iGEM.
0: And so at iGEM, what's kind of the goals and the problems that try to be solved more concretely and also the basic mechanisms toward a solution that you're trying to develop.
1: Yeah, I I think the mechanism question is is really interesting. And I I sort of touched a bit on laws and regulations and treaties. So these are things like the Biological Weapons Convention, the Convention on Biological Diversity are international laws. And then there's also guidance and regulations that come both from international bodies and from national bodies. So, for example, I, I think you're in Berlin right now. And in Germany, if you want to open a community biology lab, you have to go through a whole series of regulatory steps to be licensed to operate a lab. Which is not true in Canada, where, where I'm calling from. But you know, that's, that's one of those mechanisms. And then there's kind of what I would call sort of infrastructural mechanisms, and I think this is what a lot of international groups working in biosecurity will try to invest in. So these are things like, if you did an emergency response to Ebola in West Africa in 2016, and now you have a bunch of samples of Ebola in your freezer, how do we make sure that those samples are tracked, and that there are locks on the freezers that contain them, and that sort of thing, just so that they don't accidentally go wandering away, right? And and similarly, I think there is a need, a, a widely recognized need for better infrastructure for accident reporting. If you break a beaker that contains something dangerous, how do we know that happens? What's the base rate of that kind of thing? And then in, in the squishier world, right, there's culture of like, what are the incentives that people are facing to develop technology in a certain way? And what are the beliefs that drive them to be optimistic about their technology? And, and in some cases, I might make wrong judgments about the relative risks and benefits of the technology they're developing. And all of that, to return to your question about the goals of the field, all of that is really, you know, you'll hear both the concepts biosafety and biosecurity in English. Lots of languages don't make that distinction. So in Spanish people talk about bioseguridad. In in Mandarin it's shangwu uh, anquan. Those are more broad terms and sometimes people try to pull out a biosecurity underneath it, but really both of them are how do we protect ourselves from biology? And biosafety in English is often about how do you protect the people working with biology from it? So those will be things like filtering the air you're working with, wearing gloves creating the material data sheets on the chemicals you're working with. And then biosecurity will be more, how would you protect the things you're working with from someone who seeks to do harm with them or seeks to misuse them? So that would be the locks on the doors and maybe also some stuff about responsible communication of your findings if somebody could misuse the stuff you've researched. And I think that those mechanisms I talked about of policies and infrastructure and, and culture kind of cut across all of those. And then I would say also emerging, we have the final mechanism I talk about, which is the differential technology, right? For example, developing alternatives to using antibiotic resistance genes as selectable markers so that we don't inadvertently increase the problems of antibiotic resistance in bacteria, that, that sort of stuff
0: on the policy side, you said that, you know, the Isaac Asimov quote, you know, science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. And if, you know, policy always is just behind, how do you think about its limits, I guess? How do you think about ever really making a dent on a very fast paced front, like what's happening in the field of biology right now? Does it depend on the people who are working on the policy? Like, would you like to see more scientists being involved in actual policy regulation?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things that are sort of lumped together here. I mean, there's some people who are just campaigning for there to be funding for pandemic prevention. And I would say that's happening through policy mechanisms, right? You know, there's one report from the Bipartisan Commission for Biodefense that came out recently called the Apollo Report. And they're basically like, we should do an Apollo program for biodefense. Here's all of our technology priorities. Please fund this. And I would say that's people working through policy mechanisms, but much more on the can we create incentives and funding for the kind of technology we want to see? I also think things like the Biological Weapons Convention have made a big difference, right? Because even though there have been biological weapons programs operated by countries that signed the convention, they had to happen in secret and I wouldn't underestimate the benefit for humanity of those programs having to happen, happening secretly because secrecy is a huge inconvenience in science. And even things like not being able to openly document what you did, such that the knowledge of how to build biological weapons is much harder to diffuse and even to inherit amongst generations of scientists, I think that's a huge benefit for society. So I would say even, even though policy is sometimes lagging technology, that doesn't mean it's not making a big difference.
0: And so for you personally, being surrounded by a lot of uncertainty uh, a lot of the times, it seems, what is it like working on the frontier?
1: I think a big thing I have had to learn is how to commit to projects and ideas and hopes despite crushing uncertainty. And I actually had an extremely impactful conversation with a mentor of mine about this, who was a biosecurity researcher, and she was thinking of hiring people from the effective altruism community, which I consider myself a part of as well. And one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is she said, I don't know about hiring these people because they seem to want a really confident idea that what they're doing is like the most impactful thing and the best thing. And she said, you know, that's admirable, but we're doing research. So we don't know if what we're doing will work out. You know, we've found these data sets or these experiments to run, and we might find at the end of them that we've learned nothing, right? All we've learned is that those experiments don't tell us anything. And so she was saying, you know, I think this, I think this work has great potential, but it's also high risk, right? It's high uncertainty. And I need someone who will come and work with me for, you know, three to five years on following these problems. And so she was really hesitant to hire someone who needed such a confident story of impact. And that was really impactful for me because I went, oh my gosh, I've I've been making that mistake, right? I've been in that zone where I I refuse to commit to projects because I don't want to unless I'm like really sure that they're going to do good. And I think it's still worth prioritizing and thinking about the possible impact of your work. But I think it's been very important for me to learn how to commit, despite not knowing if something's going to work out and how to view a lot of what I'm doing as an experiment. That makes sense.
0: And so I suppose, what do you hope to accomplish throughout your career? Has there been a threat so far?
1: A little bit. So, I mean, briefly, the things I've done, you know, I did an engineering degree while I was doing my engineering degree, I did a bunch of some random image processing and machine learning, and also some bioinformatics. I helped set up a next-generation sequencing pipeline at a cancer hospital in Toronto, and then got involved with the iGEM team at my university, got really excited about synthetic biology, went and became a lab automation engineer down in, in Emeryville, California, with this company called Zymergen. And then recently, last year, after spending a lot of my evenings working on kind of biosecurity things, I, I actually made the transition to working in it full time. So the, there's some variety there, but I guess the thread I would say is trying to help biology to go well. And I, I should say upfront, I'm not a biologist and I'm not good in the wet lab. I'm too demoralized by bacteria dying or being unpredictable compared to my colleagues who I deeply respect who have so much patience for debugging experiments. Mad respect for them, not where I'm coming from. And so, you know, it's always been nice for me to be on the sidelines kind of trying to help biology go well. And it's funny ending up in biosecurity because I remember as a teenager, you know, I dropped out of high school for a bit and then I read a genetics textbook and I was super excited about it and none of my friends wanted to talk to me about genetics for hours. So that's what caused me to go back to high school because I was like, all right, I need to be in classes where people are learning the same stuff as me so that they'll talk to me about it for long periods of time. And around the same time, I was reading some books about bioethics and honestly getting kind of mad about them, but thinking, hey, responsible genetics and responsible biology is really important. And one of my mentors at the time said, you know what, Tessa, like, don't worry about this stuff right now. That sounds like a better second career. Like, you should go out and get experience in the world before you start thinking about these meta questions of how to be responsible. And I think that was good advice. And I guess I've sort of done that
0: actually. That's an interesting way to see it. Like first get the first-hand experience, even seeing how relevant some of the uh, more philosophical ethical questions are, and then developing the judgment to actually tackle them. So you're, of course, still young, but have been through quite a few positions and even fields. So has there been any particularly noteworthy moment of your career to date?
1: One that I share is that I had a big, a big moment at the Biological Weapons Convention, which I got to go to in two 2017 with this program that iGEM runs called the iGEM Delegates Program. And so because I was an alumni of the competition and I applied and they said, sure, we'll take you to the Biological Weapons Convention. That was really cool. You know, I, on kind of a week's notice, I flew to Geneva and I was at the UN and I was like, this is so fancy. This is so exciting. You know, I I bought a suit because I was like, I better look mature (laughs) at the UN. And one thing, there are a lot of great moments there, but one that really struck me was talking to someone who then left the conversation because he was like, I have to go prepare my slides for tomorrow. And that really shocked me because I, I sort of assumed there was some point in the kind of hierarchy of fanciness of career moments where you wouldn't be preparing your slides the night before, right? I, you know, I thought surely speaking to the UN is, is a moment where the people in the position to do that would not be preparing things last minute. And that wasn't true. And it really cemented this idea for me of, okay, there's no there's no real adults in the room, right? And I, I think this is something that everybody kind of realizes as they get older. I, I guess I was, what, 25 at the time? But it was very striking to me. And I went, okay, there's not hyper-competent, super-responsible people who are managing stuff like whether there are biological weapons in the world, right? There's just regular people doing their best all over the world. And that's ultimately kind of unsatisfying, right? I actually hoped there was this like hyper-competent managerial adult class that was going to make there not be problems. And that really brought home for me that there is not.
0: Do you think that's, Maybe something that should be communicated earlier in life, though, because I feel like a lot of people always have this picture-perfect view of, for example, if you go through high school, you think, oh, science is this perfectly working engine that just, you know, like everyone's perfectly rational all the time and you adhere to this very efficient framework and everything works out in the end, which obviously, if you ever spend time in the real world, you realize that breaks down rather quickly. So I think some people self-select out of the pool of people doing really ambitious things maybe because they think they don't have what it takes. Like, it's too perfect. And actually, it turns out not to be that case at all. So do you think there is something to not just learning it naturally throughout the years, but rather explicitly communicating that earlier on? And if so, how would you see a promising way to do so?
1: I agree with that. I remember feeling really betrayed uh, when I was... I think maybe 20 and did my first real research experience. And this was doing image processing analysis of low resolution videos, which it was 2011. And so it was really hard to do this because people hadn't adopted deep neural networks for image processing yet. So image processing was still quite bad. And I remember having had this idea of science from high school, not that I thought science was infallible or anything. You know, I'd, I'd read some history of science. You know, I'd, I'd read up on my Popper and my Fariband and my, you know, Structure of Scientific Revolutions by, by Thomas Kuhn, which is a great book. But I still had this idea that when you were doing science, the process would be something like you have a cool hypothesis and then you will run an experiment that is well-defined. And then at the end of your experiment, you will look at the data that came out of this black box that I imagined an experiment to be, and you'll go, ah, yes, my hypothesis is true, or, oh no, it isn't. And my experience of doing research was way more, we don't know what'll work at all, because the reason we're doing research on this is that nobody understands it. Please throw ideas at this problem and see if any of them stick. See if any of them do anything. And I really wish both that my high school classes had included some problems like that some practice doing that kind of thinking, because it really is a different kind of thinking than I was ever asked to do in high school, where you're again operating in this world where there isn't an answer, and you you may be able to generate an answer through exploration, but at the start of your exploration, you don't know if there's going to be an answer at the end of it. and That was so hard for me, but I, I think I could have been trained better to expect that sort of thing. and I also think it's very healthy for people to talk about how uncertain they are in their own work. I mean, I think maybe it's hard to do if you're trying to get people to listen to you and take you seriously. I'm I maybe in a good position right now because I'm still pretty ju- junior in my biosecurity career, so it's fine for me to be really uncertain. Whereas I wonder if, you know, me in 10 years will be as comfortable saying, well, I don't really know if this will work or not, but I think we should fund it.
0: It seems like the cultural norms, there's like a lot of incentives against admitting how uncertain you are, but it seems to me that it would really make a dent in especially young people's worldview. So going back to biosecurity, what is the most fascinating idea in your field and what idea got you hooked and thinking that it's a promising field to work in?
1: So it's interesting because I think I spent a lot of time thinking biosecurity was quite boring and sort of setting up, I thought it was important, but boring. And I had to set up a bunch of like silly social incentives to get myself to pay attention to it. And so some of this was the people I chose to be friends with and surround myself with who convinced me that it was important. And also after getting back from the Biological Weapons Convention, me and some friends set up a meetup group to read papers about biosecurity. And I'm going to be honest with you, there's no way I would have read all of those papers if there hadn't been this social accountability of, oh, I'm running this meetup group. So I better read the papers so that we can have a good discussion. And I guess some of what I try to do now is to communicate to people the things that I do think are exciting. Because I feel like my exposure to biosecurity was as a somewhat boring thing. And the things that I think are exciting, you know, partly because my background's in engineering. I like talking about technology. There's really exciting technologies out there that I think are going to make these emerging biotechnologies safer and more secure. So I talked a little bit about gene drives earlier. There's really cool stuff on localized gene drives that will burn themselves out within a given region. So one way of doing them is these kind of daisy drives, which basically chain together multiple CRISPR packages. And the links in that chain start being eliminated uh, generation on generation. So that rather than a really strong sort of hyper-selected for signal, instead you have a transient signal of this, this engineered drive. And what that tends to mean is that outside of the local area where you're deploying these engineered organisms, you shouldn't expect them to spread. So I think that's really cool. I also think there's been a lot of cool work on biocontainment. I, I read this paper recently where they were trying to do a biosensor in river water, but they don't necessarily want their engineered bacteria getting out into the river water. And they did this really interesting material science where they encased the bacteria in a hydrogel, like a molecular gastronomy, sort of like like food pearl, except it's full of engineered bacteria. And then they put a, another sort of thing per- They called it pearlescent, like a pearl shell on the outside of it and and measured and they saw, okay, no bacteria got out, but small molecules, which is what they wanted to sense, could still diffuse into the hydrogel. So I think that was a really cool example of, hey, here's a way that we could deploy this in the field, but also keep it very safe. And then in terms of keeping us safe from pandemics, there's tons of cool technology, right? You know, the new CRISPR, I mean, not that new now, but the CRISPR-Cas13 paper-based diagnostic assays, I think are really exciting. Platform vex- vaccines, RNA vaccines, I'm, I'm so excited about them. <laughs> I could rant about RNA vaccines for a long time. So I think there's a there's a whole lot of exciting technologies that people are working on. and I, I really hope that people hearing this and people now can see, oh, biosecurity is not necessarily just not doing things right it's not just deciding not to do things that you're excited about because you've taken into account some considerations about safety or whatever and now you can't do them it can also be about doing really really cool things and I think some of those available technologies that need more people working on them really do have the potential to make our future much safer so I I now feel very excited about it but to be honest it was social incentives that got me to this point and I'm hoping future people don't have to do that to themselves
0: (laughs) yeah makes sense And what do you think is kind of holding things back now? I mean, obviously, the past year, the pandemic hugely allocated funding to the field of biosecurity and biology more broadly. But is there anything still like a sort of bottleneck that you see that you wish would be resolved rather quickly?
1: So I don't. One thing that's interesting about, yeah, the pandemic has changed things. And so, you know, I might give you a different answer in six months, but One thing that has historically been an issue is that biosecurity has been very responsive. So there will be some big thing, including like this pandemic, and then there'll be this huge spike of funding, and then it'll all kind of wash away in a couple of years. And so I guess part of me is like, okay, we're gonna be in a spike of funding right now. Let's use it as best we can. But also I think it's an ongoing flaw that is holding the field back that it tends to have this really spiky funding pattern. I, I'll reference the biological weapons convention again because it has I think the the statistic that Toby Ord pulled up is like it has less funding per year than the average McDonald's franchise. So that doesn't that doesn't inspire confidence in our priorities as a world. I mean, yeah, it costs a lot of money to operate a restaurant, but you would hope it costs more money to operate like an international convention on biological weapons. And they don't have that budget right now.
0: So you mentioned using the funding that is there right now very effectively. Where would you allocate it if you were in charge, if you've thought about this? What do you think are areas worth funding more?
1: So I'm absolutely going to outsource this to the Apollo program for biodefense report, because I think they identified really good technology priorities and thought about it more deeply than I have. So they, they identified 15 technology priorities and probably like my top five out of their 15. So one this is the one they list first as well, it's like vaccine candidates for prototype pathogens. So with the RNA vaccines, for example, we really benefited from research that had been done on vaccines for SARS and MERS. So you, you may have heard about this, but for example, there's some stabilizations to the spike protein. There's these two amino acid substitutions. You substitute in a proline, I think, and it keeps it in this stable conformation that it wouldn't otherwise be able to adopt on its own without the context of the rest of the virus. And so that's an example of a, a scientific advance from one vaccine that was able to be applied to many vaccines for coronaviruses in general, because they do have a similar spike protein shape. And so the idea of prototype pathogens is, let's do a scan of, okay, where might the next pandemic be coming from? People are worried about Nipo virus, for example, and let's develop path- vaccines for those pathogens. Even if that's not the pathogen we end up facing, a lot of that knowledge should be transferable. So let's get a kind of portfolio of prototype pathogen vaccines, and then we should be much more prepared when the next pandemic rolls around and then get right into that sort of preparation. Another thing they identify is flexible and scalable manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. So we're really facing that right now, right? Where we don't have enough lipid nanoparticles in the world to vaccinate everyone with RNA vaccines. So investments in that kind of manufacturing technology, I think would be really useful. And then there's sort of, how do we catch things earlier? So I think there's a lot of talk about biosurveillance so these are things like wastewater epidemiology, or how can we make it more common that when somebody comes into a clinic and presents weird symptoms, that we just always sequence them, right? And that, that, that data from the sequencing is shared broadly. So I think I've heard people talking about it as like a weather service, weather forecasting for pathogens, right? Like, could we have an international weather map of all of the pathogens that are circulating right now? That would be great, because then we can very quickly, hopefully, pick up on the unknown ones and respond to them. Another one. This one's a bit out there. So number four, pathogen transmission suppression in the built environment. You know, I think there's been a bit of a paradigm shift. I think it's fair to say towards accepting that there's more airborne transmission of pathogens than we had been accounting for. And I think it's all, it's all a murky spectrum, right? From this is only in heavy droplets that just a lot of influenza spread is, is droplets that are even spread on surfaces. But then, you know, people have put measurement sensors up in like the high ceilings in, in school classrooms where there's, there was influenza spreading and measured some influenza. So I think we're going to see, and we should invest in a lot of pathogen suppression in the built environment in the form of increased ventilation. You know, maybe we should be adopting more HEPA filters everywhere. I think as we've learned, the rate of transmission of a pathogen in a pandemic is critically important, right? The reason we're suffering so much with these new variants, with the Delta variant, for example, is that it's much more transmissible. It's not that it's more deadly, but transmission is exponential. So (laughs) I'm really excited about investments in smart transmission suppression, whether that's better ventilation or using like UV light more often to clean out the air. Lastly, I, I really do think things to deter and prevent bad actors, because I think the worst possible case for a pandemic is worse than a natural one. I think that an engineered pandemic could actually be much, much worse than a natural pandemic. And so things that make it hard to create an engineered pandemic and spread that engineered pandemic, I think are very important for preventing those extremely, extremely severe, sort of unlikely, but super bad risks. And so I I would say technologies to deter and prevent bad actors, which often looks like attribution technology... You know, Can you tell who made a pathogen? Can you tell if it's engineered? Can you tell who engineered it? Such that you could easily blame someone if they have engineered it. I think that seems quite important to me. But all of those other ones I mentioned, I think, play into this idea of deterring and preventing bad actors, because if you're not going to have a pandemic, if you release a pandemic pathogen, then it becomes much less appealing. So I I think they're all connected.
0: Yeah. And what do you wish other people realized about your field? What are some framework shifts that you went through? Or what do you think is generally not realized that much?
1: I used to think that this idea of a global catastrophic biological risk was a little bit unrealistic. So, you know, again, I, I hang out in the effective altruism community, and people there are really worried about this kind of, are there events that could really threaten the long term future of our civilization? Most people put some discount rate on future lives and say, okay, lives that are, you know, a thousand years in the future are maybe like slightly less important to save than lives that exist right now. But even with a pretty substantial discount rate, you start realizing, oh, things that could threaten the long-term future of, of humans existing in the universe would be really bad from a lot of moral frameworks. And so from this, I remember a lot of people talking about, okay, global catastrophic biological risks that really just ruin civilization, you know, an extremely deadly, easily transmissible pandemic that goes all around the world, for example, or something that really destroys the environment and makes the planet much less habitable for humans. And I was a little skeptical of this for a couple of reasons. And I think the framework shifts that I've had are mostly things that have made me less skeptical of this this scenario. And so one was that thing I described earlier where I realized that engineered pandemics could be a lot worse than natural ones. So, you know, there's a long history of gain of function research where people are trying to explore questions of what makes pathogens transmissible or what makes them deadly by engineering them in the lab. And, you know, I think there's a lot of debate within the life sciences community about how beneficial this research is. Are we confident that the the benefits outweigh the risks? But some of the things that have been very convincing to me of, oh, this is really risky from that research are, you know, engineering a strain of mousepox in 2001 to completely evade a vaccine. So there was a vaccine that worked, and then this engineered strain completely evaded it and had 60% mortality in these mice. And you go, oh, is that, that's just accessible by engineering of this, of this virus? That doesn't inspire confidence. So I think learning that engineered pandemics could be quite bad was a big framework shift for me. Learning about more of the flaws in our existing systems, so learning about the history of accidental release from quite reasonable labs... So there have been some, some examples of accidental release from bioweapons programs. So in Russia, there was an anthrax release in 1979 due to, if I recall correctly, they were cleaning an air filter and didn't adequately communicate to the person who was managing the laboratory that this air filter was not in service. And so a bunch of anthrax got out into the surrounding town and a bunch of people died, but even fewer deaths from these recent things. But the U S actually shut, put a moratorium on data function research for a while partly in response to all of these instances of kind of insecure shipping of high-consequence pathogens. So people receiving a sample thinking it was deactivated anthrax, for example, and then it wasn't, and it had sort of been labeled improperly and they didn't have the right protective equipment to to receive it. So I I think learning about some of those Again, poor handling, laboratory release slash accident things really lowered my confidence that our current systems are adequate to handle some of the work that we're doing. And I think that was a really important framework shift for me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess after going through hearing about all these stories, what's your view on gain of function research now? It seems you're rather critical of it, but would you kind of like to outrule it altogether?
1: So... I think that it makes sense that if you're working with a potential pandemic pathogen you should be subject to like way more scrutiny and i, I think this thing, this sort of thing is happening in the us under the, like the p3co framework it's called but i think things get messy when you're like okay let's experiment on natural viruses and see if we can make them transmissible amongst mammals maybe including humans because if you're starting with you know this is this is a, i think a flaw in our current system is if you're starting with a virus that can't infect humans you might only be working with it in a biosafety level two lab. But then as you're engineering it, you might engineer it into something that can infect humans. And I don't think we have a system right now to know the moment that that happens and you should bring it into higher containment. So I think that's that's a big flaw. I guess I feel like I need to try harder to falsify my belief about gain-of-function research. So I, I think I currently have a low confidence belief that the, the benefits don't outweigh the risks. But I think... I think a few things. One is that, in general, slowing down science shouldn't be viewed as not costly. I think that science proceeding quickly and good people not being shut out of science by too much, you know, painful regulation and bureaucracy is actually very important. And openness and sharing of information so that the whole world can benefit from it is very important. And then secondly, I think, I think what people people who do gain-of-function research say, okay, this is really important because we're understanding the landscape of of pathogens, we're understanding how they work this will protect us in future pandemics. I think I haven't tried hard enough to false, like I currently believe that isn't true, right? I don't don't know of many kind of high profile examples where someone was doing gain of function research as opposed to countermeasures development. You know, I know of a bunch of spillover, positive spillovers from vaccine research, for example, or from basic science. I don't know of a bunch of examples of gain of function research that has led to really positive outcomes in pandemic response or therapeutics. But I haven't looked into it that hard. So if you or anyone listening can falsify my belief, I would, happy, I would be happy to have it falsified and become more confident that or become more convinced that gain of function is worth the risks. At the moment, I think much of that research is not. And it's correct that it's subject to a lot of scrutiny.
0: Got it. And more by security. What is the most underexplored interesting idea of your field, do you think?
1: Well, one thing that I feel really excited about is more people from the, from psychology and other social sciences getting involved in the field, because again, I'm in this squishy cultural influence incentives world. A lot of the questions are things like, how do you change people's beliefs? You know, or if people don't want to take more responsibility for the impact of their work, eh, why? What's, or if people don't want to, scan their research for potential dual use implications. You know, the idea that maybe there are risks of misuse that you need to counteract in some way. Why is that? And I think I, I do sometimes see people operating under what I, would, what I would call the information deficit model. So this is the idea that like, oh, it's just that people don't know enough. And if we like told them that things could be risky, then they would change their minds. And my understanding from a little bit of reading and educational research is that's mostly not what drives people to change their minds. You know, things like conversion stories of I used to believe this thing, but now I believe this thing are much more convincing to people than just giving them information. And my my friend and colleague, Dan Green, has a background in in psychology research and he, he has this whole theory about solution aversion, where if you dislike all of the available solutions to a problem, then you'll be inclined to say the problem doesn't exist. Because all of the solutions are so unappealing to you that you don't want to you don't want to say that the problem is real because all of the solutions are terrible. And so he's he's currently investigating is that is that the dynamic that we have in biosecurity? So I guess maybe this is under underexplored. I feel like there's a lot of room for people to do very interesting psychology research because so much of doing biology safely is actually dependent in my mind, on the psychology of individual researchers.
0: Yeah, and on solution aversion, I suppose if if this does apply to biosecurity, how do you think about overcoming that?
1: So I think I think some of the solution aversion that I see that is reasonable is people are just like you just want to shut down my research, right? And a- as I said with data function, there I will I will bite the bullet and say there's pr- some research happening that I currently, without a ton of confidence, think probably shouldn't be happening. I think we're not do we don't have the wisdom to do that research safely. That said, I think most research. Can be done and i think there are options available to you other than simply don't do your research so within iGEM we one one way to think about this kind of dual use dilemma right the idea of something you're developing you're developing it for its benefits but you face a dilemma when it's not totally clear that the benefits outweigh the risks and usually both benefits and the risks are like super super speculative right because it's often pretty basic scientific research And so I I sometimes think about this Venn diagram where you have an overlap between research that is itself just kind of inherently dangerous, like work with potential pandemic pathogens, and then research that isn't inherently dangerous, but maybe the knowledge it develops could be misused by somebody else to do harm. And I think a lot of what we govern right now is stuff at that intersection where it's like dangerous on its own and it could be misused to do harm. So that's where a lot of this like dual use research gets governed. And in my context with iGem, we don't let the teams work with anything in BSL-4 or BSL-3, so they're not really working with stuff that's inherently dangerous. But they are sometimes working with knowledge that sort of has the potential to be misused. And I, I think we have solutions for that that are, that are better than don't do your research. So, you know, one of them is like maybe manage how you communicate about your research. And, and so I'll give an example of some researchers who in the past decade, but I remember when uh, discovered a new botulinum toxin and there was no antitoxin that worked against it. And so what they did is they published that they had found this, but they didn't publish the full sequence of it because they thought, okay, we don't, we don't have an antitoxin for this yet. We shouldn't give people instructions for how to make it, but we should let people know that it exists. And I, I thought that, that was a pretty responsible disclosure of this discovery. Another thing I think you can do is you can, sometimes when you notice and anticipate risks of your work, you can choose to do a slightly different version of it that still achieves your scientific goals, but is harder to repurpose for harm. So an example of an iGEM team that did this was this team from Bielefeld who were looking at a recycling project and they wanted to do electronics recycling, super important problem you know, lots of, lots of e-waste in the world, but they realized these bacteria they were developing to digest electronics could potentially be misused to digest, you know, your car's navigation system or something. And they were like, that actually seems bad, right? And the bacteria they're working with aren't like inherently dangerous to humans, right? There's no pathogen involved in this system, but they went, that seems bad actually. And what they ended up doing is they said, okay, we're gonna refocus this whole pathway we've developed for like reclaiming and digesting metals, but refocus on runoff from mines. So that's a system that, you know, is an aqueous system, only works in water. Probably if your car's navigation system is already submerged in water, you have other problems. So it's it's much harder to repurpose for that harm that they had anticipated, but they were still achieving most of their scientific goals. So I think there's available paths like that where you, again, this idea of differential technology development, you steer towards the less risky things without just giving up on your project entirely. Because I don't want that either, right? I'm in SynBio because I think it's exciting and cool. I don't want people to just not do stuff. And so I I think that's one of the solutions solutions I would propose is, hey, maybe there are spaces where you can develop something that's still really cool, but has less risk of being misused.
0: Got it. And has there been any non-obvious idea in your field that you feel like applies to other fields as well?
1: Mm, I feel like I have such like a, a curse of knowledge here, right, where I've been reading up on this stuff for a couple of years. So I think one thing, not from biosecurity, but from lab automation, that was like very important for me to realize a few, a few things from lab automation one is that robots are very fragile. You know, I know like this showed up when Tesla tried to automate their manufacturing, for example, like the way that robots currently work, they're, they're not smart. And so if you elbow them and then they get a few degrees off in their, one of their joints, then your robot arm is just gonna do like extremely wrong things. And I experienced this myself trying to program robot arms just to like lift plates and move them, you know, a few feet and somebody, I don't know, the table would get shaken and then the robot would be like, oh no oh no, time to crash. And so I think, I think people sometimes imagine that specification is easier than it is. And to really get into a high throughput automated space, you need yeah. to be able to specify every single little step And most of those systems are not designed for flexibility right now. So they will break down or not even break down, but they will be very hard to adapt to a slight change in your protocol. That's sort of not how any of those systems are designed. So I think if you're doing high throughput clinical assays that are regulated and you can't change them without like filing a multi-page document with the government, then you're pretty good for automation, right? That's a place where automation makes a lot of sense. And I think there's still a lot of technology space that we're trying to fill for automating more exploratory research. You know, high throughput R&D is something that's still in process, and we we haven't solved that problem yet. And I think that wasn't... The fact that this is all driven by fragility and sort of rigidity of automation wasn't obvious to me until I actually worked with robots.
0: So among all the things that are kind of going on in the field right now, is there any one thing that you'd like to point out that remains unsolved and really bugs you?
1: Yeah. One thing I'm working on right now that I'm I'm excited about, but also frustrated by is empirical examination of risk assessment. So I feel like often, and I'm totally guilty of this too. You're like, oh, some research is risky. So we should like throw more risk assessments at things. But I don't know if those work, right? If two different people do a risk assessment on the basis of exactly the same information, my current belief is they will often get extremely different answers for what kind of risk exists in the project. I think risk perception is highly variable and there's not a consensus on like, how to correctly perceive risk either, especially for like fairly speculative risks from emerging technologies. And, and so one experiment I'm working on right now is getting many different people to use a standardized risk assessment to assess the same project, kind of just to see how much variance is there. And I suspect it will be lots. My current hope is that we're also asking them to suggest ways to mitigate the risks that they've identified. And so what I'm really hoping right now is that we will find that yes, the risk, and, the risk is perceptions of risk, perceptions of benefits are all over the place. But when you actually get down to it and say, okay, what should this project do to be safer? People will give similar answers. That's what I am hoping the data will show. I don't know if they will. I mean, the best thing would be as if they show, oh yeah, actually risk assessment is easy and people agree. That would be great. Then I would just be like, great, let's all use this risk assessment. It'll be wonderful. I don't think that's going to happen though, (laughs) but I think it's, you know, there's like a need for more empiricism, I think around this field and also around general measurement of we talk about building a culture of responsibility all the time. How do we know if we've succeeded? How do we measure that success? I think there's a, a need for more empiricism sort of broadly.
0: And is that like a fairly new thing? Because it seems to me that a lot of fields would require this kind of standardized risk assessment. So it would be surprising to me that is such a, I guess, seldomly tried experiment to do.
1: Yeah. So I have seen some surveys of people where a bunch of experts were asked questions like, do you think there's going to be a biological weapons attack in the next 50 years? And the histogram is all over the place. There's no concentration of answers. I haven't actually seen again a, a really empirical examination of this kind of risk assessment. I think you see I think most of the risk assessment frameworks at least for biotechnology that I've looked at have been developed based on like very deep expert knowledge but not necessarily based on like AB testing of of different question formats for example. Got it. Understanding that this
0: is a rough estimate, do you think we're making good progress on the biosecurity front? And feel free to answer this for biology more broadly as well.
1: Biology is making a lot of progress. I mean, past decade has been kind of a big decade for CRISPR. And although clinical uses of CRISPR are still kind of growing up, experimental uses of CRISPR are great, Right. Like for knockout screens, CRISPR is amazing at that. And for sensing of things, CRISPR is really, really useful for that. Sequencing and synthesis costs just keep dropping. I think we're the current pandemic is very different than it would have been even a few years ago when there was so much less sequencing capacity in the world. Biology's made a lot of progress. Biosecurity maybe less so. And, and the things I would reference here are, are people have been talking about like managing gain of function and dual use research. And I don't, when I read conversations that people were having about this stuff back in 2012, when there were these series of pretty controversial papers about avian influenza and modifying it so it could be transmitted between mammals, I don't feel like the conversations we're having now are super different from the conversations we were having then. And that was a decade ago. Similarly, with the Biological Weapons Convention, one thing that's really different from it compared to other international arms treaties is that there's no verification system and so what that means is that nobody's, you know, under the Chemical Weapons Convention, there's all of these investigatory teams that go around the world and are just like, hey, are you making chemical weapons? And and they really like do investigate and verify that there is compliance with the treaty. And there's no system like that under the Biological Weapons Convention. And there was a big effort to develop one in the 90s. And then there was this big review conference, and they were maybe going to adopt it in 2001. And this happened to be right after 9-11 and other, other terrorism in the US, and the US was sort of I don't think I can commit to, you know, adding this whole verification system. We need our biodefense program kind of intact. Unclear if other countries would have ended up vetoing it if the U.S. hadn't stepped up, but but regardless, it didn't happen, and there hasn't been more progress on that since. That said, sort of technical biosecurity stuff, I feel like is making a lot of progress, and I think there's also been an influx of funding, at least at least within the U.S. and the U.K. for biosecurity efforts partly coming out of the Open Philanthropy Project and the Center for Long-Term Resilience and other kind of large funders motivated by these long-term future considerations.
0: And what do you think young people could do to help the field nowadays? What would you want someone just starting out to know? Maybe resources you'd recommend and lessons that you wish someone would have told you when you were just starting out?
1: Yeah. So again, I'm really, as you've probably gathered, I'm really excited about people going into this differential technology development, kind of applied biosecurity stuff. So I think in that sense, you'd want to learn a little bit about biology. You know, you could go do a bioengineering degree, for example, and then go try to do research with someone who's working on these problems or go work for Sherlock Biosciences or another company, Octant Bio, uh, Gingo's screening platform. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of places that are working on this technology in a commercial way as well. I also think, you know, come work in policy if, if you're excited about it. I know, for example, there's a recent research agenda from the Legal Priorities Project. So if you're really interested in law, they've actually sketched out this whole research agenda for people who want to work on legal questions related to the governance of synthetic biology. And I will say 2021 is a great time to get into this field because there is a huge amount of funding coming in right now to prevent future pandemics. In terms of resources, frustrating but true, learn English. A lot of these conversations happen in English. That's, I think, kind of unfair, but it is true. So I think working on English is an important skill in this field. There's a course that's quite good from the University of Bath, I put out on Future Learn called Next Generation Biosecurity, and that gives quite a good overview of recent thinking in the field. So I would check that out. That's a good way to sort of see if you're interested in the field is oh do any of these things really spark your interest the last thing i would say is like seek out mentorship i have benefited so much from having great mentors in my my life and career and there are some mentorship programs and internship programs specifically around biosecurity so there's this next generation global health security network and they have an annual mentorship program where you'll get paired with someone from your region and they will meet with you once every week or two and help you work on a project in health security so that that's really cool and that's a cool network to tap into uh, if you're involved in the effective altruist community, there's this WANBAM, which is an effective altruist mentorship program for women and non-binary people and trans people. There's the Stanford Existential Risk Initiative. They have an internship program as well. If you're from the iGEM community, you can come hang out in After iGEM. We have a governance and policy subgroup. But but I think there's there's a lot of ways to find mentors, and a lot of people like doing mentorship. Like I love doing mentorship. It's very good on the mentor side because you feel like you know things. And I don't usually go through my life feeling like I know very many things. So it's nice to have these little islands of feeling like I know stuff when I'm talking to my mentees. So that would be my, probably my biggest piece of advice for young people is there's nothing better than a good mentor. Seeking that out and finding even mentorship networks that will support you is really great.
0: And between you and the people you work with or are closest to, what's the most contentious topic and theme that seems to repeat itself when you're debating about biosecurity?
1: I think there's a big debate on how much we should favor secrecy. Like how good is secrecy? And so this comes from this idea of, you know, there might be technologies or information that could be repurposed to do a lot of harm. And so people will talk about this as an information hazard, right? This information itself is hazardous and therefore should you avoid popularizing it? And I think there's a bunch of interesting considerations here, right? If you think that usually discoveries are rediscovered almost immediately, then the answer is you should popularize it because somebody else is about to discover it and they might be less security conscious than you. So that's one argument in favor of popularizing these things. On the other hand, something that I think gets more complicated in biosecurity compared to cybersecurity, for example, you know, cybersecurity has some norms of responsible disclosure and you sort of have to decide between... We don't want to leave this vulnerability open. We want to hold people accountable. You know, there's, there's a lot of considerations there. It's not like big, you know, cyber companies are necessarily responsive to the disclosures that you do. But I think there's a hope at least that things can be patched. If you find a security vulnerability, it is often patchable in computers. And if you find a security vulnerability in biology, we may not yet have the technology to patch it. If we find something, you know, some high-risk modification we can make to a virus there's no real guarantee or even suggestion that we know how to undo that or how to protect ourselves from that. And so I think that's the sort of thing that motivates people towards secrecy is we're very vulnerable to risks from biology. And so we might need to choose to not disclose certain things. And so yeah, I think there's a big kind of debate about the relative benefits of openness versus secrecy when handling potentially high consequence, high risk information.
0: And what's your stance on it? Where do you fall on the spectrum?
1: It's hard because it's a broad spectrum. So if I think about, you know, all life scientists, I'm pretty towards the be conscious and disclose responsibly. If you subset to just the people within the like long termist effective altruist community, I think I'm way more open to talking about stuff than many of them. I think part and I think my my reasoning there is I really buy the arguments that some information can be hazardous. And I think it's very important for kind of community health to be able to openly discuss things. I think those are sort of the countervailing things for me, where I think think about framing, make sure your stuff can't easily be repurposed. But I I think adopting a, a norm or a default of secrecy is actually like potentially quite harmful to discourse norms. And so I think I, I fall farther from the secrecy norm than many people in the effective altruist community. So we've touched upon
0: this briefly already, but if you'd have to summarize, how should potentially dangerous ideas be handled by the life sciences?
1: I think there are options for talking about them, not completely. And so some of this is you can do a you can just do a security through obscurity thing, right? Where if you're like, I found out this thing about the botulinum toxin, I want to make sure all the anti-toxin researchers know about it, but I don't want anybody who would misuse it to know about it. Then you publish in like the journal of applied toxicology, sub-journal, whatever. And only the people in that field are likely to come across it. You put a lot of technical language on it and make it like maybe harder to understand for someone who's just like nosing around looking for easy ways to do harm. So I I think that's kind of like security through obscurity thing is a real option. The trouble with it is that it makes it harder to understand for people who want to you know, there's a real trade-off there. And and so I think in some ways, I for the responsible communication, I more favor the idea of partial redaction. So that is what they did with the Bachelorette. They published it in a, in a big journal, but they held back a little bit of the information and sort of said, we'll give this to you on request. I think that's pretty good. And again, I think the other two things I would say is like, make it harder to misuse. So like that that iGem Bielefeld team with their recycling project that I talked about, I think the obscurity thing sort of falls under this too. If you, when you look at your technology, you can say, how hard is this to repurpose? Does it require extremely specialized, expensive equipment to work with this thing that I developed? If so, you can be a little bit less concerned about how you communicate it because the tacit knowledge and the resources needed to repurpose it are very high. And then the the last thing I would say that I I think is maybe a little bit underused is you can also co-develop countermeasures, right? So you can notice something that's maybe dangerous to communicate about and you can say, okay, I won't communicate about this until I have some countermeasures as well. And so I know when Kevin Esfeld and others were developing gene drives, they actually published papers about safety of gene drives ahead of publishing papers about building of gene drives. And I think that was like quite a smart approach. So I I think that's a good option as well. Since you're
0: looking a lot at cultural interventions and fostering a responsible treatment of potentially dangerous technologies, how do you measure whether your cultural interventions are working?
1: Yeah, this is so hard. This is such a difficult thing. So I think some of it is just the curse of trying to measure low-frequency events, right? If you're concerned about preventing accidental release the causes of pandemic, that's not a thing that happens very often, right? Like, even laboratory-acquired infections are quite uncommon. One thing that you see in aviation, for example, which is, like, an example of a field that I think has has done a lot of investment in how do we be a really, like, high-reliability, low-accident-rate field. And I think they have a really good system for capturing near-misses. So if a pilot, like almost doesn't, I don't know anything about flying planes, almost doesn't flick a switch. I don't know how you fly a plane, but you know, if if there's a near miss where they do do the right thing, but they realize, oh, I was near to doing the wrong thing, they'll actually share and report that. And so I think capturing those moments of what happened that caused you not to miss, but also what happened to cause you almost to miss, I think are really important and currently my best thought for how to do this is that at iGEM we're planning this year to host sort of a storytelling event around near misses hopefully as a way to capture a bunch of these stories and get a sense for the the texture of those stories without like punishing anyone just like hey come tell your story of a near miss it'll be fun and partly partly this is motivated the storytelling thing which again is not going to give you a base rate. right it's going to give you the texture or the flavor of some of these stories but it's not going to give you empirical estimations of how common these events are, for example. But I, but I have been thinking a lot recently, I've I heard this really great anecdote from someone who was talking about the importance of ethnographic studies. And they, they were sharing this this person who was doing an ethnographic study of these Spanish-speaking people in, in a particular neighborhood, and she was just hanging out with them. And there was a belief demographically that most of these people she was talking to weren't literate, that they couldn't read. And yet she was hanging out with them. And, you know, it's a Sunday and all of these kids come like trooping into the, into the living room and they pull out all of these books of Bible study and they start reading them. And so she's like, okay, they're clearly literate. And it turned out that the, the way that this was being measured was with a survey, which was asking people like, do you have any newspapers at home? Do you have these kinds of books at home? And they hadn't actually asked, do you have a Bible at home? Do you have, you know, any religious pamphlets at home? And so they were completely missing the way that these people were reading because, you know, and there's a challenge with survey questions of social desirability, right? You don't want to just ask people, do you, can you read? People, people get uncomfortable with that, but they were missing a lot from not having done that, not having actually gone out and talked to people and sort of directly questioned their stories. So I'm excited about the ethnography, but also I recognize its limitations, right? You're not going to get a base rate from that. In terms of trying to do more of that, Megan Palmer had this really good paper last year on learning to deal with dual use, and she sort of defined these like three things that she thought we needed to do to get a bit more empirical about measuring these things. And so she was like, first, you should define success criteria. What does it look like if you succeed? And so success criteria for our work at iGEM, for example, would be like, this year we're doing an open application for a safety award of like, you think your team did like exceptionally good work in safety. So I think one success criteria for us is like, how many teams apply for that award? Like how many teams of our, you know, 300 or so think they did good enough applied safety and security work to apply for that award? And then, you know, those success criteria don't matter. This is her second point, unless you create data infrastructures that actually capture and measurements of this. And then the last thing is, she says, you know, you need you need places to test policies. And this is actually a lot of why I, I wanted to go work at iGEM, is I think iGEM is kind of, because it's an annual synthetic biology competition, it's a unique place to be able to test certain things. So we can change the policies every year and see if they have an effect. And we can ask people to do certain things, ask them to do this particular workshop on identifying dual use concerns or something. And then, you know, go look at the data that that team generates and see if if the teams who attended that workshop have any difference from the teams who didn't attend the workshop. Those sorts of things, those tests are part of why I came to iGEM. If it's somebody's PhD, you can't just like throw random policies at them every year, right? That would be like quite unfair, (laughs) I think. Whereas I I think in the context of the student competition, it's much, obviously we want to still keep it very reasonable for all the people who are participating, but I think there's a bit more room to experiment.
0: And since we talked earlier about kind of the cultural norms sometimes going against expressing your true uncertainty or failures, I'm curious, when you reached out to those people to tell their stories of near misses and potential failures as seen in their social circles, how easy has it been if you've already started the process to actually get them to share?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I've only started a little bit. I think it, it helps a lot to share some of your own experiences. This is, this is sort of a general thing about like getting any getting people to open up and especially getting like negative or scary feedback. It like helps if you start with something from your own life. So even when I'm talking about trying to hear people's kind of lab horror stories, right? I'll share the example. This this wasn't me, but a, a dear friend of mine who was working at the University of Waterloo and a new grad student came in and was expecting there to be like a noise or something when they turned on this gas line and there wasn't. And they just assumed, and they tried like to light the flame and it didn't work. And they just assumed it was broken, but it wasn't broken. It was just taking a little bit longer than they were used to. So the whole building had to be evacuated because they just left this open like they left it open for a couple of hours somebody else came into the lab and was like hmm that smells really fishy and you know it was a near miss cuz nothing bad happened and everybody just had to be evacuated i mean probably a few people lost you know their days experiment or something but if somebody had like lit a match in that room there might have been a huge explosion and i actually think most people have like horror stories like this And I think if you start with your own, then people are like, oh, it's safe. Like, I can talk about this because I'm not going to be judged for having like done something sketchy. You know, everyone understands this is like part of what happens.
0: Right, right. Being uncertain together. Yeah, so I
1: guess it was like, all
0: this conversation about kind of risk and uncertainty and the potential very real, very reasonable dangers to be discussed, how do we still steer the cultural conversation and the discussion of biotech away from overt doomsaying toward a more productive outlook, actually realizing our own agency and the bright future that this could enable? How do you not make people be paralyzed by the burden that culturally often gets communicated by this risk?
1: I I definitely see some people experiencing this, especially people who have really tried to integrate these risk concerns into their practical lab research. I do see some people who then are like, oh, I don't know if I can do anything because I'm seeing all of these, like, you know, who get very anxious and are like, I'm seeing all of these possible risks for all of the different options I can choose. And I I guess when I talk to those folks, what I usually say is like, nothing is risk-free in life and you have agency. And you can look at that landscape of risk that you've like gone and identified proactively, which is great. And you can pick which parts you wanna move into, right? So like, you've already done this like amazing work of sketching out all of these risks now steer, right? Now pick the part that is safest and most important that you think also is important and go over there, right? And I think often people find that a bit freeing. And and I do think there are certain risks that are serious enough that like, you just want to like minimize them to zero. Like they're actually just really bad. But I think many of the risks we experience in biology are more of the sort where, and this is maybe one of those places where I would disagree with some other people in my field, but where I think you can thoughtfully navigate those risks and, and end up doing very good work. You don't need to feel paralyzed by the fact that somebody might might use your work to do harm. Because first off, probably they won't. And I don't think that's very, very comforting, but more you have agency over how your work goes out into the world and how it develops. I think claiming that agency is very valuable.
0: So informing that possibly more productive outlook, what do you think the role of the media is to do so? And what do you think kind of shapers of public opinion, public channels of communication often get wrong about biosecurity?
1: One thing that I think I've appreciated way more in the past year because pandemic is how difficult it is to communicate about risk and also how often people are communicating, playing a sort of motivational hyper game rather than just communicating what they believe. I think at the start of the pandemic, I was much happier outsourcing my beliefs to public health authorities than I am now, which is sort of sad, right? Like I actually would have preferred if I had got through the pandemic and been like, oh, it's so good to listen to public health authorities. But I, I think what I've realized is that there are lots of people who see their job not as like sharing information, but as shaping behavior. And that's, I don't know, that's not like an unreasonable vision of their job, but I think shaping behavior is quite hard. And I think I thought they were just trying to share information with me. You know, I I would give the example of some of the masks debate in North America, right? Where I think the goal, it's hard to know. I don't know if people actually thought that masks didn't work for, you know, preventing infection or if they thought, oh, we need to reserve masks for healthcare workers or, or what. I'm a little unclear on that. But, you know, I, I certainly don't feel like I received people's, like, here's my confidence interval about how much masks might help, but they were just like, they don't work. I think they were actually much more uncertain than I believed listening to them. So I think in terms of, like, communication about this kind of stuff, I know, I know Toby Ord has talked about this, too, where a lot of these, like, doomsday-y scenarios end up very cartoonish because we only ever talk about them in the context of a Marvel movie or something of like, and then the universe is going to be destroyed. And it's worth having conversations that are less cartoonish about these things and, and more grounded in uncertainty, I think. So I, I think there's both like some benefit to telling telling stories of reasonable people worrying about these things. And and maybe we'll get more of those in the post-pandemic, right? You know, the people who were worried about pandemics three or four years ago, I think are now maybe looking a little bit more reasonable and a little bit less doomsday
0: and what do you think have been the most critical points of failure in the communication of risk? If iGEM was to take on the CNN newsroom, what would have it have done differently? Like, which aspects would have been highlighted or rephrased or left out? Would you just say the underlying communication of information instead of the focus on shaping behavior? Or are there other things that you would have rephrased?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I would have messed it up, to be clear. Like, if someone had given me the reins at CNN in, you know... March of 2020, I'm sure I would have like made an absolute mess of it. That said, I mean, like many people who spend too much time online, I've been like a huge fan of how Zainab Tefeki has done a lot of communication during the pandemic. And so partly I might have just like outsourced my pandemic communication to her. But I think she's done a really good job of saying like here's what I think is true and here's why I think it's true and like here's what might change my mind. I think there is some power in sketching out your reasoning. But I don't know if you're the mass media, like that's also boring, right? So it seems possible to me that if I went and did my you know, optimistic, yes, I'll be extremely transparent with my reasoning and super high integrity. And I'll just say exactly what I think and do my best to make it as clear as possible that a lot of people would just completely tune out because that's much more boring than confidence. So
0: (laughs) yeah, it just seems inherently hard to manage the incentives there. So this is something that I've been wondering for a while, since the technology just seemed to be available why have we not seen more biological weapons being used yet and how will future technologies bring down the costs of DIY bio even further
1: yeah this is something i re- my friend georgia ray referred to this i thought this was cute as the germy paradox named after the fermi paradox like why haven't there been more biological weapons um, and, and she wrote a series of essays on this which i quite liked so i mean i think one thing that really talking about those framework shifts one thing that really shook me up was learning that alm the Japanese death cults that did the sarin gas attacks in the Tokyo subway were actually developing bioweapons. I think because that... Although they weren't very successful, but that sort of was a bit of a framework shift for me because I, it hadn't occurred to me that there would be like actually kind of omnicidal actors who were death culty enough that it might be okay to them if like most people died on the world. You know, I think previously I'd been like, no one would use a biological weapon because there's too much spillover effect and they're gonna, you know, hurt their own people as well. And then I learned about the, because and, and, there, there's a long history of bioweapons use in warfare, right? Like including in the second world war and then bioweapons programs going up into the, the 70s and 80s and 90s. You know, I I think I I sort of thought, okay, but people won't use like super high consequence potential pandemics in their bioweapons programs because they don't want everyone to die. And both I then learned a bit more about the history of, you know, Japanese use of like plague in China, which is not as scary as an airborne pathogen, but still pretty scary. Like I think, oh, I'm going to get the number wrong. I think 30,000 plus people died in some of those like bioweapon caused plagues. So there have been high consequence uses of biological weapons, but you know why are not we seeing more now? I think is a is a valid question. And so some some people answer them with like because they're they're not very good. And I think I used to believe that a little bit more. And then I was like, well, people have chosen to use them a lot in the past, though. And also this terrorist group in the '90s was getting was interested in using them. So now now I'm less convinced by the argument that they're just not very good. I think one one real argument is that bioweapons are hard. If you've never browsed, this is an ancient Twitter hashtag, but if you've never browsed the hashtag overly honest methods, it's really funny because it's people in labs just talking about like weird, embarrassing methodological stuff that they've done. And some of it is just silly, right? Some of it is, I don't know, samples were vortexed for 10 minutes because that's how long it took me to go get a drink from the cafeteria. But but some of it is, is you know... PCR machine was tapped exactly three times because that's the only way that it works and we don't know why. And so there are some real kind of difficult, tacit knowledge things about engineering biology that are still true. And and I think you were pointing to future technologies bringing down the costs. I think that's making biology easier to engineer is happening. Maybe I think less fast than people think. I think if you've never like experienced the frustration of like trying to transform just like a plasmid into a lab strain of E. coli, which should be like so easy And then just like seeing, you know, your PCR bands be like an absolute disaster. You know, I think think it's still pretty hard, but it's getting a lot easier. I think about the way that people used to engineer biology in, in the 70s. And it terrifies me like how so many of the basic tools that we use now were absent then.
0: Yeah, so it's another reason to really get into differential technological research like right now, I suppose, before it's getting super, super easy for incoming people to do a lot of harm.
1: Yeah, I guess I'd also say, like, I mentioned the sort of bioweapons convention secrecy benefit. I do think that's a part of the dreamy par- paradox, too, right? Is like, if there is a strong taboo against bioweapons, people don't develop them in the open. I think that makes them way harder to develop. If you have to do things secretly, it's much harder.
0: <laughs> right. Do you think a century from now, we will be kind of radically altered in terms of our physiology?
1: I would say yes. I mean, I guess if we think about like a century ago, like the 1920s, I'm trying to think of whatever, what are our physiological changes? Well, people are like taller, they have much straighter teeth, they live longer, you know, many fewer people die of bacterial infections. I would sort of call that a physiological change. We're getting some really cool, like novel prosthetic technology. I mean, cochlear implants, which are are not without their controversies, but there's a lot of people who can choose now to have hearing where that wasn't a choice for them before, you know, exciting novel prosthetics that actually do sensing. So that's kind of where we're at, like right now. And I think... I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the coming century. I feel only like safe to predict a few decades ahead because biology is is changing really fast. One thing that I've been really having a lot of fun reading about lately is a bunch of research on bioelectricity and regeneration, not just bioelectric regeneration, but a lot lot of regeneration in general. And and you may know this, but children can regenerate the tips of their fingers, human children. So if you like cut off, uh, you wouldn't cut off. If a child accidentally cuts off their fingertip... (laughs) We're not part of like a German children's story here. So no one is cutting off the fingertips of children, except children themselves by accident. But okay, yeah. if that happens, they can often like grow back that fingertip in the span of about a month, which is cool. And I guess I've come from reading some papers about this sort of stuff and, and other regenerative things, you know, in the optic nerves of blind mice, for example, it seems like it's possible to knock ourselves from the wound healing pathway to the regeneration pathway. And it's possible to do this in a lot of organisms. And I think it's going to be possible in humans as well. So I think it's likely that there are many kinds of injuries that we will, including aging related degeneration, you know, losing your sight, for example, where we'll be able to do targeted interventions that move us back into the regeneration pathway. And I think that'll be like a really meaningful physiological change.
0: Yeah, I've been uh, reading about uh, Michael Levin's work on this, and it's been super fascinating. So I guess to bring it to the more personal part, this is a philosophical meta question, but how do you decide what change you want to make in the world? We've talked a lot about biosecurity in general, but what has been your meta framework for approaching this question?
1: Yeah, there's a series, keep referencing blogs. There's a series of blog posts called Replacing Guilt by Nate Suarez. And he has this, this whole part, which I, which I really appreciate sort of saying like, hey, you don't necessarily get to know what you're fighting for. And he says, I know so many things that I'm against, but I don't have such a good idea of what I'm fighting for. I just know lots of things that I don't like. And one thing he suggests, and, and I think this this was a really helpful exercise for me, so I'd recommend it to everyone, is he suggests you know sitting down with yourself and getting ready to take some notes and saying to yourself, okay, I care about the world and I want the world to be different than it is. And then just seeing like what comes up for you. like What are the things where, if you let yourself hold those two feelings, if I care a lot about the world and I want the world to be different than it is, what are the things that show up? And that's a a way to investigate like, okay, what are the changes you wanna make in the world? And for me personally, a thing that really bothers me (laughs) is just the extinguishing of human potential when people die for like no reason. People die in the world from dehydration. That's so unacceptable, right? Like no one should be dying of dehydration. And you know, it's often like people got a mild bacterial infection, they have diarrhea, they're a child and they die of dehydration. I just like reject that, right? That's like not an okay state for the world to be in. And so I, I want that to change. I think we like, need to be done with that. And there, there's a lot of other things where I see like vulnerabilities in the world and vulnerabilities in the future, where again, I really like people. And I also like just the planet. I like trees, I like the sky, I like insects. I like want all of these beings to have like a good future together. And so there are other things that really motivate me where again, I want the world to be different because I see many of those futures like potentially being cut off by various threats to them. You know, climate change is an example, right? I want us to like suck carbon out of the air because I want the planet to stay this like, I don't know, lush, green, habitable place that it is right now.
0: And what idea or book life experience are you most excited about right now?
1: So life experiences are like few and far between at the moment because we're still in the pandemic. So mostly I'm like gardening a lot. I've been growing some mouse melons. It's been very fun. But in terms of ideas, one, one thing I got into way more or book, I guess. One thing I got more into in the pandemic was reading poetry. I'd always found reading poetry kind of boring, I think because I had tried to like sit down and read whole books of poetry at once. And I do still find that quite boring. But my grandmother, who's just wonderful, I love her a lot. But she started this habit of like emailing all of her depressed relatives poems while we were all quarantining. She would like email email us a poem like every couple of days. And it got me reading a lot more poems. And so I've been finding a lot of Very exciting and evocative and meaningful things in poetry. So one one poem I I wrote down a little bit to quote is this this poem called "The Long Now" by Robin Beth Shair, and she describes you know walking along a beach at night with her child and her child like looking up at the stars and asking her questions and contemplating you know mortality and and legacy. And so one one little section from it that I really liked is, "If each life is a single spoken sentence, then I know how yours begins, but will never hear it whole." All the time, and we do not have time. That's beautiful. Yeah. Your grandma emailed that to you. That one I actually found on my own, but God. I emailed it to her. She liked it. <laughs> it's
0: fantastic. I love that you're sharing that with your grandma. What's something that nobody will tell me that I should really know?
1: Yeah, robots are not smart. Don't think they're smart. Like, no, but okay. So there's a thing in biology where. It's quite common in a biology lab that, like, the lab will have bought a robot because it was shiny and exciting, and then it will just be gathering dust. And this is, like, sort of embarrassing for everyone, so I think people might not tell you it. This This is why I think I'm gonna tell you it. And the reason is that robots still are not that smart, and they require a lot of babysitting of just, like, oh, the pressure is off, and, like, somebody needs to tighten this thing, but first somebody has to, like, debug it. And an academic lab isn't gonna hire some, like, fancy field technician to come in and service their robot that currently no one is using, right? So there's like a whole world of robotics in academic labs and and other and just like small labs in general, like not highly automated labs that are like virtually unused. And I think it's reasonable, right, because most of the people working in those environments are interested in working with microbes and they would much rather babysit their cell culture than babysit a robot. And so they're not going to take it on. And that's totally fine. But I, I remember at Zymergen, on the automation team, we would often hire the robot babysitters from various labs. Like the person who had sort of nominated themselves as the person who keeps the robot running, that would come, they would come and become our lab automation engineer.
0: Right. How, how surprising was that to you when you first came into the field or started working on these problems? Is this a ver- very established thing within the subfield or schooling? Or were you taken aback when you found out how babysitting intensive uh, robots still are?
1: I was, both, I was taken aback, and I think I was unprepared for like how fast robots are when they're well, when they're well babysat. I guess I almost the first time I toured Zymerchin's lab, I like almost cried. This is an embarrassing anecdote about me that I also share often. So get ready which is that we we had a fragment analyzer that can run very high throughput gel electrophoresis and running one of these experiments in low throughput which I had done a few times because again I'm not really a biologist but I had like been in the iGEM office and been handed a pipette a few times and been like stop doing math do some pipetting and I was like okay I can do that probably and and you know it would take an hour or so to run like eight samples and it there is like fiddly and annoying and then there was this robot that you could just sort of chunk a plate into and then it would run you know 96 or so 384 samples and give you a a perfect you know rather than like looking and trying to like measure what size of bands you were getting in your sample it would just like tell you it'd be like oh yeah there was a peak of this size at this at this band size and that was very cool but very heartbreaking to me (laughs) because i was just like wow like in some on some level like humans shouldn't be doing this right if robots can do it that fast it felt like a sort of waste of all of these like amazing wet lab biologists i was like why do they have to spend time on this when this robot can do it better than us and faster and I guess the answer is babysitting. Nobody wants to babysit the robots and also they're expensive. So yeah, those, those two things are like, I don't know, the tragedy of like wasted time on gel electrophoresis combined with like the frustration of babysitting robots is like attention. I was surprised by.
0: And do you think a lot of people that have kind of spent most of their times in wet labs, I've been in a few throughout my life and always found it importantly boring as well, but <laughs> some people do seem to have a great time doing so. Do you think there's also some aversion to just having to give it up at some point and uh, aversion against the robots for getting habituated to that task and perhaps getting really good at it, too? So being scared to lose that joy to them.
1: Yeah, like the ma- the mastery of wet lab techniques, again, it's not something I've ever experienced. I remember being in a lab and watching a grad student who was working with anaerobic bacteria. And so she looked like a magician, right? Because she had to move super fast so that nothing got exposed to the air. And she was like lighting things on fire to suck the oxygen out of these beakers and moving, really looking like she was in, you know, a time-lapse or something. And I remember I was just like doing some training and watching her and she was just like, <sighs> and like smoke is billowing forth and she's like running to the freezer and leaving a trail of like liquid. When nitrogen smoke behind her so I feel like if you're on that level like you are like a lab master and I imagine there's like some pleasure in just like the pure mastery of those tasks right like that's like an incredible physical skill that that person has developed and yeah my guess is that like even over the next decade or so it's not like the need for that is going to go away because people will still need to develop the stuff that later needs to be automated and it won't make sense to do that in the high for the most part. Like, so I I think there's still a lot of room for, like, mastery. It'll just be on the, like, design side rather than the execution side.
0: Right. What is something that you discovered in your life that society or employers or friends kind of concealed that you think is important to know? And this concealing doesn't have to necessarily be willfully. It could just be a subconscious kind of implicit thing that usually is hidden.
1: Yeah. So we talked earlier about, you know, experiments aren't real. I feel like that was willfully concealed from me. I feel mad about that still. Another, okay, this is extremely specific, but I remember being super mad in university that I had been taught trigonometry as a series of triangles because I was using, this is so silly, but I was using it all the time in my engineering classes because like calculating cycles of things is really relevant And, you know, breaking things down into like sine waves is really like that kind of signal processing is really relevant. And so I was using trig all the time. And when I had first been taught it, I like basically didn't pay attention to it because I was like, shapes are okay, but I find geometry kind of boring. Like I'm going to learn just, I'm not going to learn intuitions about this or anything. I'm just going to learn the minimum amount to pass these tests and then like go focus on math that I find interesting. And so I felt a little betrayed by that when I got to university and like trig was everywhere and it was like clearly useful because why, why did you show me all these pictures of triangles? (laughs) Like why did you waste my time with those? We could have been doing interesting analysis. So that's an extremely specific thing. And I will add that on top of experiments are not the way you think they are. And there are no adults who are competently running the world, which were my other two like big frustrating discoveries.
0: (laughs) Makes sense. Do you think it's important to know the written kind of explicit rules or the unwritten implicit rules? And in your life, what's an unwritten rule you've discovered?
1: I have a really funny story about this, which is a thing that made me not want to work in Washington, (laughs) D.C., Which is that I was at a conference, a biosecurity conference, actually, and there was this lunch where you could chat with people, with senior people in the field and and sort of ask them questions. And I was excited about this. I was like, okay, I'm going to go chat with some senior people. And it happened to be just after a really bad fire season in California. So I was living in California at the time. California these days has a smoke season where it's really hard to breathe the air because of all the wildfires and so someone was just being very friendly and asked me about that. And I was like, oh yeah, it was, it was really bad. You know, I went and bought out P100 masks to wear so that I could bike to work still because the air was so, so poisonous that, you know, if I didn't, I would feel quite sick. But, you know, at the same time, I'm not, I don't blame the forest service that much. You know, there's obviously been some problems with forest management, but it also seems like just because of climate change, like the summers have got so much longer and hotter and they haven't had time to adapt really. And there was like silence at the table. There was like this tension that suddenly erupted. And I was like, What did it say? And then one of the senior people like laughed and he was like, this is DC. You can't say that here. And I was like, say what? I'm like still confused, right? And then the other senior person was like, well, I'm sure we can all agree that if there's like one constant, it is that the climate changes. And I was like, yeah. And like recently it's been changing to be like much longer and hotter summers. I was just like so taken aback by this. But that was like clearly an unwritten rule that there were like certain things that I wasn't supposed to mention that I just sort of stumbled into (laughs) very awkwardly for me. I think that knowing unwritten rules is more socially important because I think like often unwritten rules are unwritten because they're like more sacred to people. And you'll get more social consequences if you violate an unwritten rule because people are expecting you to have the sort of, I don't know, cultural fluidity, I guess, to understand the like sacred unwritten rules that are surrounding them. And if you walk into a different culture and don't have that cultural fluidity, you might really put your foot in your mouth as I did. Although again, my, my conclusion from this was like, I don't want to respect that unwritten rule, so I just won't be in this culture.
0: Yeah, that might have just been a good thing happening in the end. Uh, not working in DC after all. What have you become more skeptical about in the past 10 years, say? Uh, what have you become more confident or radicalized about?
1: A lot of answers on this. One like super personal one that I'll pick for skepticism is the idea that like mental health problems are intractable. Like I think I think I sort of made the mistake with my own mental health of thinking that problems, because I had had some like problems with depression and things for a long time, that meant that those problems were really hard to solve. But in fact, like having a problem and being bothered by it for a long time is not the same as having really tried to solve the problem. And there's a, it can be hard to distinguish if you've just had a problem for a long time, and like actually, like it's hard to know if you've actually tried to solve something. But for myself, when I actually tried to solve my mental health problems, because they got really bad and, you know, tried like taking some drugs and tried doing therapy in a really like actually putting time into it sort of way, uh, a lot of my mental health problems got better. And so that I I think I sort of, I both thought therapy was mostly like, I don't know, lying on a couch and talking about your childhood instead of like learning thinking techniques that are going to help you do the kind of thinking that is more beneficial to you. So that was like a big change for me. I think I had thought of therapy as like just, I don't know. Being very self-absorbed, and I was like not that interested in that. And then it turned out that there was there were kinds of therapy I could do that were much more like training skills in how to like effectively manage my emotions and my and my thoughts. So that was really great. And again, it, I sort of had just thought, oh, this must not be tractable because I haven't solved it yet and it's been going on for a long time. But instead, I just hadn't really tried. So skepticism about that. Confidence. Ooh, lots of things. I guess one thing I've become more confident in over the past 10 years, is something something like people matter all over the world. I think I believe that. I guess 10 years ago, I would have been 18. I believe that for sure. You know, and I, I was thinking about my career and about my decisions from a framework of thinking about how can I be useful in the world, but I had much less of a framework for that. You know, I sort of believed that vaguely and thought it was good to use some of my resources to try and be helpful, but I, I hadn't really read up that much on the relative benefits of different ways or like what are how, how many you measure what you value? you know do you value just like the length of people's lives? Do you value the quality of their experiences? How do you How do you start thinking about and prioritizing different ways to reflect that value that people matter all over the world? So I think I've become more confident in that, partly by getting exposed to ideas from effective altruism and other places that really kind of gave me a much more real moral framework for thinking about that.
0: So last question. What don't I know that I don't know? What important questions have I not asked of you today? Is there anything left unmentioned?
1: Mm, Let's see. I've already complained about robots. I've complained about science. (laughs) Um, I guess one one idea I haven't talked about that much that I think is worth talking about is this idea of the unilateralist's curse, which is a mouthful, but it shows up a lot in these debates about information hazards. And it's kind of the idea that if you have something that has really broad effects, you know, imagine you have like a hundred people who all like independently stumble upon this discovery, and most of them are like, "Ooh, this has really broad effects, and the effects seem bad." so i'm I'm gonna not pursue it further. But you only actually need like one person out of that hundred to be like, actually, I think the benefits outweigh the risks. So I'm going to go ahead. And, it, and so it's this like coordination problem where like only one over optimistic person is needed to like realize all of the all of the risks. Right. And so that's that's sort of why it's a curse. And, and I think a lot of these kind of coordination problem dynamics show up in vaccine prioritization as well. Right. Where if you're developing a vaccine, it's kind of a global public health good. And so if you're a country trying to incentivize vaccine development in your borders, just like naturally, you're going to undervalue it on a market level because you're not going to realize all of the benefits because it's, it's globally beneficial. I think it's important to, to keep in mind these questions of incentives and of sort of where things get a bit screwy in terms of coordination problems and like broad global effects.
0: Yeah. And talking about the economic disincentives, especially as we've seen with taking preventive steps toward pandemics Do you have any kind of favorite proposals that you'd like to talk about?
1: Yeah, there's there's been some work recently from some biosecurity researchers on like promoting that you know, I talked about the Apollo program and those platform pathogen vaccines. There's been there's been some work on how how would we promote this. And so one of the problems in how we incentivize vaccine production right now is we'll say, okay, we're gonna buy a certain number of doses. But they're saying, well, maybe we actually need to instead just more carefully measure the value of developing those vaccines, including like the health and the economic benefits, and sort of delink it from just like buying a number of doses, especially because there's kind of positive technology spillover between vaccines. If we just measure in doses, we're probably undervaluing them. People have also been talking a lot about like prizes, different contract mechanisms. Yeah, there's a there's a deep literature on this stuff that uh, I would totally recommend to people who are who are interested. You know, if you're an economist and you want to like make the world safer from pandemics, there's a lot of really interesting work happening right now.
0: Fantastic. Okay. So we'll link all of these things in the show notes. And Tessa, thank you so much for taking the time today. I learned a ton and hope others did as well.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, always fun to talk about this stuff. I mean, it's, it's what I think about all day. So it's nice to share it with folks. <laughs>